Well, good morning, everyone. How great has it been to be able to look at Jesus through the eyes of Mark in this series? And today, we get another opportunity to see who he is and what he has done. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Mark, you know that this book from the beginning has been a book of action. We saw the word immediately from the very beginning, and we have seen Jesus immediately healing, teaching, casting out demons, and then we've seen something else brewing in Jesus's life as he's gone around and immediately done all of these actions. The thing that's been brewing is something that's going to come to the forefront in our text today, and that is the subject of rejection. Now, we have encountered some of this already in the book of Mark, but today the rejection that Jesus faces gets turned way up. As Mark's story unfolds, we're going to find that the rejection we see in our text today just continues to snowball. Really, from this point of the book on, we'll see the opinions and the criticism and the judgment and the feedback that Jesus gets just increase and increase and increase. As Jesus goes on doing the will of God in the book of Mark, we find that along with doing the will of God, Jesus will encounter a lot of noise. Now, I like to uh, consider myself somewhat of an expert in noise because I am raising three boys, eight, six, and four. It is so loud in my house all the time. Guys, it's so loud. (laughs) It's so loud. Uh, In my car, it's so loud. In our yard, it's so loud. In the house, all the time, so loud. In fact, if you live near me, you hear me constantly out in our backyard going, guys, yo, guys, guys, come on, quiet, please. I'm so afraid that one day I'm gonna come home and all my neighbors are gonna be in the front yard with a big petition, you need to leave, you're too loud. My kids scream at each other in our trampoline, they yell, they cry. Uh, I, I actually had to start praying about the noise levels in my house because I don't wanna be a bad dad. And, uh, and sometimes my temper would start to rise. Sometimes I have to match their, you know, their energy to, to, for them to hear me. I have to talk real loud and I don't wanna have a home where there's yelling and things like that going on. So I was praying about it. God, how do I handle all the noise in my house? And I believe God gave me an answer to that prayer request. He gave me something called noise-canceling headphones. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and these have been a real answer to prayer in my house. And I mean that, a real answer to prayer. Uh, now, I have no idea what the neighbors hear outside. Um, could be bad, I don't know. Sometimes I'll be cooking dinner now with these in. I have a podcast on or something, and I look down, and there's a child, tears coming down his face, blood coming out of his knees. Doesn't bother me at all, because I have my noise-canceling headphones. We, went, we took a, a long drive, it was about 12 hours out to Indianapolis just a couple months ago, and somebody, one of our friends asked me when we got back, hey, how'd the kids do in the car? And I said, I have no idea. I, I don't know how they did. You'll have to ask my wife because I had my noise-canceling headphones in. Now, before you judge me, my wife has since also got a pair of noise-canceling headphones, so <laughs> if you're gonna judge me, you have to judge her as well, all right? But the further we go into the Gospel of Mark, the more these noise levels are going to increase around Jesus. The more opinions, the more criticism, the more judgment, the more feedback, the more opposition, the more rejection. 
Now, anyone who's tried to follow Jesus with their life knows that these are things that you sometimes experience as followers of God. Now, you can avoid some of these things if you're not trying to follow Jesus with your life. You can navigate some of these things. But if you have made a decision, I wanna model my life after Jesus and walk with Jesus in obedience to God, you're gonna encounter all of the things here. In Jesus' life, the enemy constantly used opposition, rejection, opinions, criticism, judgment, feedback, noise, constantly used these things in Jesus' life to try to discourage him and ultimately to try to get him to quit what God would have him to do. And folks, that's exactly what the enemy would love to do in our lives as well. He would love to take all of that noise and cause it to discourage us or even get us to quit what his call on our life is. So today, I wanna answer a question that I think our text unpacks. That question is, how did Jesus handle all the noise? This text today is a pretty incredible passage of scripture. We're gonna find in this section of Mark the first time Jesus interacts with his family in this gospel. We're also gonna find some significant religious leaders show up in Jesus's life, and we'll see Jesus go straight into the noise that both of those groups bring, including the infamous unpardonable sin pronouncement that Jesus makes. So today we'll look at Mark chapter three, verses 20 to 35. Would you pray with me before we open up God's word together? God, I thank you for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, we get books like the Gospel of Mark that are nested in Scripture to give us exactly who you are and exactly what you did. God, forgive us when we don't know who you are or what you did because we don't know your word. But encourage us in moments like this to lean into your word and to see you for who you really are. Lord, we're in a, in a culture and in a world that is antagonistic towards you. And if we just put up our sail and let us float wherever this world takes us, it will not be toward you. Lord, we need your word to moor us in this life, to anchor us. And so God, I pray that you do that now as we open up your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So to understand our passage today, this section of Mark, it's important to know how Mark often frames things in his gospel. Now we know Mark has an affinity for threes. Remember Pastor Chris pointed out last week when he lists the disciples in uh, this gospel, he lists them in threes. And Mark does that quite a bit. He works in threes. And one of the things he does actually is referred to in the commentaries as a Mark sandwich. And I'll show you what that means. We see this all over the place in the book of Mark. He'll start a scene and then he'll bring in a new scene that interrupts what he just brought up. And then he'll refer back to the first scene and continue or conclude that story. And this framework, this sandwich is exactly how our text sets up today. So we'll see in Mark chapter three, verses 20 to 21, Jesus interact with his family first. And then that gets interrupted by Jesus interacting with some scribes in verses 22 to 30. And then finally, we'll conclude back with Jesus and his family, verses 31 to 35. So, First, Jesus and his family, Mark chapter three, verses 20 to 21, the word of God says this. 
Then when he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So Jesus here is back in the place that he's staying, most likely in Capernaum. And we get a detail in here that we're pretty familiar with at this point in the book of Mark, and that is that Jesus is drawing a massive crowd. We get this detail in here that the crowd's so big, they can't even eat, right? And, and this, once again, shows us just how magnetic this Jesus is. People are flocking to him. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Jesus' family hears about this large crowd that's inundating him in his home that he's staying in. And what do they do? They travel to him, probably from Nazareth, about a day's journey. And why do they come? They want to seize him. They literally want to pull him out of this house that he's in because they think he has lost his mind. Other translations will translate this a little differently, maybe a little bit more literally. Jesus has gone berserk. That's what the family believes. And they're saying that. So the first time that Jesus' family is mentioned in the book of Mark, how do they respond to him? You are out of your mind. They respond with rejection. Now, if you're new to Jesus, uh, you might find it surprising that his family didn't follow him, but even other gospel authors make it very explicit that this was the case. John 7, 5 tells us not even his brothers believed in him. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a minute. You are in this book of action, immediately healing, casting out demons, teaching, doing the will of God, your family shows up, and what do they do? How do they respond? They undermine you. Now, we don't know exactly what was motivating the family to seek him out and, and pull him out. We know what they were thinking. He's lost his mind. Maybe they were genuinely concerned for him, thought he literally was crazy. Maybe they were embarrassed by his behavior and these crowds coming in. They didn't believe he was who he was saying he was. So the last thing they want is all these crowds being influenced by him. Whatever the reasoning of the family, they call him crazy. Ouch, right? <laughs> this is your loved ones who undermine you. He's lost his mind. They say publicly. How does Jesus respond to his family? Well, we don't know yet because Mark interrupts this part of the story. And in verse 22, we go to Jesus and the scribes and a new group of people comes on to the scene. So this new scene begins in verse 22. The Bible says this, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now, we've seen scribes before. These are legal scholars. And when I say legal scholars, I mean they're scholars regarding the law of Moses. So religious legal scholars. And don't miss the fact of where this group is from. Because Jesus has interacted in the past with local religious leaders. But here come the big dogs from Jerusalem. 
These are the scribes of the scribes, and they've come down probably on a mission to find out more about this Jesus. And notice their accusations here, two calculated ones. Number one, he's possessed by Beelzebub. <laughs> Beelzebub in the New Testament's another term for Satan. So they're saying he's inhabited by Satan, and not just inhabited by Satan, Second accusation, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So these big dogs from Jerusalem, these scribes of scribes, national figures, come down to Jesus and they say that he is possessed by Satan, but not like a victim, not like poor guy, he's been possessed by a devil. He's actually an ally of Satan. Remember, Jesus has faced charges before, those local Religious leaders charged him of healing on the Sabbath. We looked at that text a couple weeks ago. Here, the charges against Jesus are ratcheted way up. Not only is he healing on the Sabbath, this guy is a partner with Satan. So here Jesus is doing the will of God, healing, teaching, casting out demons, doing more that, than Israel has seen in a long, long time. And how do the national leaders of Israel React, rejection. You're a partner of Satan. What a charge. So just three verses into our text today, Jesus experiences these back-to-back -back rejections by his family and by the scribes, the national religious leaders. And the charges aren't nothing, right? He's crazy on one hand, and he's filled with a devil and a partner of the devil on the other hand. This has to be an extremely discouraging moment in the life of Jesus. It has to be. In fact, if you're reading Mark for the first time here and you're turning the pages, you don't know where the story goes, you don't know anything that happens in the life of Jesus and you get to this point, his family just attacks him, the, the national leaders of Israel attack him, you have to be wondering, how is Jesus gonna navigate this moment? Is he going to be able to? Is he gonna quit? This is serious rejection and opposition. Now you might be wondering why Mark includes these rejections in his story. I think the answer to that is really important for us to consider today. Uh, it's a reason that, that Matthew includes rejections, Luke includes rejections, even John includes rejections like this. I think the writers of the gospel under the you know, influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wanna make sure people who are learning about Jesus recognize that if you follow Jesus, you will encounter rejection and opposition. You can count on that. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And we see Jesus experiencing it here in a very intense way. One of the things I'll do when I'm working with a, a newer volunteer at church or a ministry leader or if I'm discipling someone, is I'll talk to them about a, a milestone that they will get to at some point in their ministry life. And that is the first time that they receive opposition or rejection. Uh, I've had many times in my office and people in ministry longer than me, many more times than I have, have had people in their office the first time someone experiences rejection or opposition. Somebody accuses them of something. Someone assumes a bad motive. Someone says something about them behind their back that's not true. 
That's a tough one, and it's a milestone that everybody doing any kind of obedience to God over a lifetime is gonna experience. I remember when I was finished my education, I was looking for my first church to, to come to, and I, I knew one of the pastors here, and I had started talking about possibly doing an internship here. It's 2013. Uh, I went out to lunch with somebody to talk about the idea of doing an internship here. And the entire lunch, they tried to talk me out of going into ministry. Opposition. Rejection. My wife had a worse circumstance. That same season, probably the same month, she sat down with a loved one to talk about going into ministry and this opportunity we were praying through. And they told my wife, honestly, you're gonna make a terrible pastor's wife, they told her. Do you believe that? Rejection. Opposition. It's a milestone if you determine to follow Jesus and walk in his footsteps. It's inevitable. It will happen. So how does Jesus respond to the noise that he encounters? Well, we're still in that middle section. Jesus is here talking to the scribes, so we'll get to the family in a minute. Let's talk first about how he responds to the scribes. Verse 23 says this. And he called to them and said to them in parables. Notice that he calls the uh, scribes to him here. This is a conversation Jesus wants to have intentionally. And he responds to the charge that they leveled against him. You're a partner with Satan. He responds to that charge in three ways. First of all, in verses 23 to 26, we're gonna see that Jesus responds to them with, why would Satan work against himself? So he says this, at the end of verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Jesus says here through this little parable, a kingdom that's internally divided, a kingdom with internal turmoil, that has a lot of weakness. That's not gonna work out. Or a household that's internally divided, there's no strength there. Verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. What Jesus does in these few verses here is he challenges the logic of the scribes. If Satan were working against Satan, that wouldn't make any sense, Jesus tells them. If I were inhabited by a demon, really, why would I be casting out other demons? So Jesus calls out the illogic of the scribes here. He calls their argument absurd. It's ridiculous. Number one, why would Satan work against himself? Second way he responds to them. I'm overcoming Satan, he says, not working with him. Verse 27 tells another little parable here. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So what Jesus says to the, the scribes here is if you wanted to rob a, a big guy's house, he's not gonna let you just walk into the house, take whatever you want as he watches. You're gonna have to do something about that strong man first. You're gonna have to tie him up and if you secure that strong man, maybe you have a chance to go around his house and plunder his house. Jesus says, in this little parable, I'm the person who's tied up the strong man. I have bound up Satan, and I am currently cleaning him out, is what Jesus tells the scribes. I have bound him, 
And now I am taking back all the territory that Satan has gathered. Satan has put his demons into people. We know one of the hallmarks of this book has been Jesus casting them out. Jesus saying, I'm cleaning out Satan. I'm not working with him. I'm an antagonist of him. And then third, Jesus tells the scribes, you're guilty of an unpardonable sin. He throws the knockout punch to the scribes. He says this in verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus brings up here what of course has been come to call, come to be called the unpardonable sin. Now this is a phrase uh, among Christians that has caused some confusion and no doubt some worry as well. I know there's people who've been up late Googling, what is the unpardonable sin? Have I committed it? Christians have worried about this. We're familiar with it, but what exactly is Jesus talking about here? So to answer that question, I want us to ask a few questions to drill into what the unpardonable sin really means. First of all, what is this sin? So look again how verse 29 starts. Whoever blasphemes. Now that's a word, blaspheme, blasphemy, that we don't see very often in our culture today. What it means is literally speech that denigrates or defames. And so the first thing to know about the unpardonable sin when you're trying to figure out what is it, it's gonna be a sin that involves speech that denigrates or defames. Second question, who is the sin against? Verse 29 continues, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. So the unpardonable sin is gonna be blasphemy, speech that denigrates or defames, specifically against the Holy Spirit. Now it's important if we're gonna understand what this sin is that we remember Jesus isn't just bringing this subject up out of thin air. He's not engaging with the unpardonable sin as some hypothetical situation. No, the unpardonable sin is brought up specifically in the context of what Jesus' conversation is with the scribes. So remember, who was it that the scribes say that Jesus was possessed by? Satan. But in reality, who is it that fills Jesus, according to Mark 1? The Spirit of God. Remember, he descended on Jesus like a dove at Jesus' baptism. And so what Jesus is saying is when the scribes accuse Jesus of being filled with Satan, they are using speech that denigrates or defames the Holy Spirit. They are committing the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit. Third, what are the consequences of this sin? Verse 29 goes on, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And that's where we get the phrase unpardonable sin. Jesus' language here is emphatic, never, eternal. The language here is chilling, and it's meant to be chilling, but when you think about it, what Jesus says here isn't really all that controversial, nor is it all that surprising. What Jesus says here is that the Holy Spirit witnesses or testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. 
If you reject that witness, you will not find forgiveness elsewhere. The Holy Spirit testifies as the final witness. Jesus is who he said he is. He's the son of God. If you reject that witness, you're not gonna find forgiveness anyplace else. What the scribes are doing here, what Jesus tells them they're doing is they're sawing off the branch that they're sitting on, right? The, the witness is here telling them, this is Jesus, the son of God, and they are ignoring, rejecting, blaspheming that witness. And when that branch gets sawed off, there is no coming back from that. Fourth question, who can commit the sin? Verse 29 ends this way, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now to understand the unpardonable sin, it's really important to continue to unpack this context. Who is Jesus talking to here? Scribes. And remember, these are scribes from Jerusalem. I mentioned before, the scribes in Jerusalem are some of the elite religious leaders in Israel. And when Jesus talks to them, as they represent the national position on Jesus, they're functioning as this is Israel's position on Jesus. He's filled with Satan. When they say that, Jesus responds to them with a national proclamation. It's really the fact that Israel as a nation is in the midst of committing the unpardonable sin. They are sawing off the branch they're sitting on. Primarily then, the unpardonable sin is something that's spoken to the nation of Israel. It's a national sin. And yet, we see at the beginning of verse 29, Jesus puts a universal twist on it, doesn't he? Because he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. So anybody in the nation of Israel, even up to today, who follows in the legacy of the scribes and rejects the witness of the Holy Spirit can commit the unpardonable sin. Now in ministering in a church context, um, there's been some times where I'll get a phone call or an email or a conversation with somebody and they'll say, hey, uh, I wanna talk to you about the unpardonable sin and they get in my office or we get on the phone or they write the email and they say, have I committed the unpardonable sin or can I commit the unpardonable sin? Christians worry about this question. So I wanna give you the, the way I typically respond to that. And it's three, three responses. First of all is this. This is really important. If you reject the Holy Spirit's witness about Jesus, you will not find forgiveness elsewhere. I want everybody in the room to hear that, everybody online to hear that. If you reject the Holy Spirit's witness, you will not find forgiveness elsewhere. However, number two, by definition, believers are people who do accept the Holy Spirit's witness about Jesus. To come into faith in Christ, you accept what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. So number three, the warning about an unpardonable sin is not for believers, but for those who reject the Holy Spirit's witness. Now, in my experience, the people worried about committing the unpardonable sin aren't the people in the world who don't love Jesus. It's the people in the church that often worry about that. But this is not a warning for you if you're a child of God. So in verses 23 to 30, Jesus gives us this power-packed three-part answer to the scribes, quite a response. 
but there's still another group that Jesus needs to address. So let's head back to Jesus and the family. Part three of Mark's story here, verses 31 to 35. Remember Jesus's, uh, the family's response rather to Jesus in verse 21. They told him, you're out of your mind. Here's how he responds in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they said to him, sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So how does Jesus respond to the rejection that he faces from his family? He tells this group in the presence of his family, those who do God's will are my true family. Jesus in this passage elevates the voice of his spiritual family. He elevates the voice of his spiritual family. Now, that's very significant, specifically because we're in a gathering of the church right now. So he elevates the voice of this group. Look around at each other. I know it's awkward. I know that's awkward. Look around at each other for a minute. That's the group of people that he elevates. You may be facing noise and rejection from people that you love, that love you, whose voice matters. Jesus elevates the voice of this room, those who are doing the will of God. Now we know Jesus has a real love for the people of God and that he has many times in his teaching elevated the spiritual family over the physical family. There's famous passages of, of scripture like when Jesus says you need to hate your father and mother to be my follower, which is sort of an emphatic, maybe exaggerated way of saying you can't have any other priorities but me. We also know maybe my uh, favorite example of this, when Jesus is on the cross, he only says a few things. And one of the things he says is he looks at his mom and he looks at John, the beloved apostle, and he says, behold your mother. Remember that? And we know Jesus had other brothers, physical brothers. We just read John 7, 5. They didn't believe in him. Mary had other sons. But Jesus wants to make sure that his mother has a spiritual son in this life. That's how important a spiritual family is to Jesus. So he elevates the voices of those who are doing the will of God. So we get in this section of Mark, verses 20 to 35, this three-part story, Jesus and his family, Jesus and the scribes, Jesus and his family again. I was praying through, what is this passage have for Renew Bible Church of Perkesee? What is the, the point that we're supposed to walk away with as a church family? Now, I do think the primary way, uh, reason Mark includes this in his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to prepare followers of Jesus for that inevitable opposition. We talked about that. I think that's the main reason it's here. You're going to encounter rejection, opinions, criticism, judgment, feedback, when you do the will of God, those things will happen. They're inevitable. But why does Mark sandwich these stories together the way he does? And what do we learn when we look at the whole about how to deal with that kind of noise that's coming? 
The noise can come from anywhere. In Jesus' life, it came from his loved ones. It came from his enemies. We'll see later in the book, it comes from his own disciples sometimes. In our own life, it can come from a thousand places. It can come from the culture we live in. It can come from scrolling through social media. It can come from those own insecurities that feed into our mind. I wanna give you, in the last few minutes, we have a strategy for how to cancel the noise that comes when you do the will of God. And it's a strategy that I believe Jesus uses in this text. So in this text, Jesus identifies two voices that he listens to and that he filters all the noise he encounters through. Now I'm gonna put two headphones up on the screen and uh, these are my famous noise-canceling headphones here. Put two headphones on the screen. Let's call these the two voices that we need to listen to. Voice number one, what does God say? Voice number one, what does God say? Now we know in our text, Jesus encounters scribes who tell him that he is filled with Satan. But Jesus knew what God said about him. Remember back in Mark chapter one, verse 11, what the father said about Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When the noise came at Jesus, you're in partnering with the devil. You're in league with Satan. Jesus knew what the voice of God says. You're my beloved son. I'm well pleased in you. When we encounter noise in our life, and it could come from anywhere, maybe from enemies, maybe from friends, maybe from social media, maybe from inside our own mind, we need to do what Jesus did. Listen to the voice of God and filter all the noise through that voice. So maybe you uh, decide to serve for the first time at church and on the way out, the first Sunday you're serving, somebody that you interact with here at our perfect church, you know, um, <laughs> implies that you're not doing that great of a job. So the voice comes at you, you're not good enough in your role, you should quit serving. And maybe they don't say it, you know, most people have enough EQ not to say it, but they imply it. You got the message. So you walk to your car, you sit in the car, and you think, why am I even doing this? I don't, I have, I have other things I could be doing with my time. How do we handle the noise, the feedback that's inevitable? What does God say? God says to depend on him when I feel weak. 2 Corinthians 1.9, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God. God, I'm hearing feedback right now that is discouraging me. Use this to help me to rely more on you. Maybe you're up late one night scrolling on social media and uh, one of those brilliant, high intelligent people on social media posts something like this. You deserve more attention. You should leave your wife and that voice, that noise, that feedback, that opinion comes into your mind. Ask yourself, what does God say? God says to love my wife unconditionally. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Let that voice of God be a voice that filters out the noise. 
Maybe you're up late working on your books for your business and you realize my business is failing. And that voice comes, you're an embarrassment. Your family deserves better. How dare you? How could you? What does God say? God says, I am a dearly loved child. First John 3, 1, see how very much our father loves us for he calls us his children and that is what we are. I'm not defined by how good of a businessman I am, although that's tempting sometimes, right guys? I'm defined by who God says I am. I'm a dearly loved child. Maybe another voice that you hear, uh, a family member implies your kids are struggling, you should be ashamed and it hits somewhere in your heart. What's God say? God says, I don't have to be ashamed anymore, Romans 8, 1. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Maybe they, they bring up memories of the way you could have parented better back in the 90s. And maybe they're right, you could have. But you've worked this out with God and you know what God says. You're not a perfect parent. You were never expected to be a perfect parent. That's why you have Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A last voice, your anxiety is getting worse. You'll never get relief. I know I talk to people sometimes who, 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 who struggle with that voice. I don't know where that voice comes from, but they think that thought. What does God say? God says, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Here's the point. In this life, we are going to encounter a lot of noise, opinions, feedback, judgment, criticism, opposition. When that noise comes in, have the voice of God in one ear and filter all the noise through that voice. There's a second voice that we see in this passage. That second voice is a confirming voice. I would call the first voice the primary voice, but the second voice confirms what the first voice says. That second voice is, what does the family of God say? Remember back to our text, Jesus is called by his family, something not very nice. You're crazy, you're out of your mind. What does Jesus do? He has another voice in his ear, doesn't he? He has the voice of the family of God. And when he's called crazy or out of his mind by his family, he elevates the voice of his spiritual family. What does this family, the family who's doing the will of God, what would they say about me? In fact, you can handle all of those same noises, all of that same feedback that we talked about earlier with this second voice. So let's say it's your first Sunday and you get the implication you're not good enough in your role, you should quit serving and you go to your car and you wonder why am I doing this and you remember the voice of God and that helps but one step we often don't take as the family of God is to listen to the voice of the family of God. Maybe give a call to a friend, someone in your small group, someone you serve with and say, hey, listen, I don't need to go into the specifics, but I had a big discouragement today while I was serving. I gotta be honest, I'm not sure I wanna serve anymore. What's the family of God gonna tell you there? Hey, brother, hey, sister, God's given you gifts that he hasn't given to anybody else in our church family. This church family needs you serving. We're not a whole body without you serving. Filter that noise through the family of God. Or you're scrolling one, one night and you, you read a, an article about leaving your spouse and that tempts you. Listen to the voice of God. Love your wife unconditionally. That's primary. 
But secondarily, what's the family of God say about that? Text one of the guys in your small group. Text one of the guys in your Bible study. Call one of the girls that you know from church and be honest with them. Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with commitment in my marriage. What's the family of God gonna respond? Let me pray for you, brother. Let me pray for you, sister. Don't forget what God says about that. I know it's hard sometimes. Listen, my wife and I, 15 years ago, we went through something like that. But God will see you through it. That's what the family of God does. And the family of God will answer all of these. When we feel like a failure, when we feel like we should be ashamed, when we feel overwhelmed by a struggle, it's one of the functions of the family of God. So when we do the will of God, church, bad news, <laughs> it's inevitable, we're gonna get criticism, rejection, feedback, opposition, it will happen. How do we handle the noise the way Jesus did? Two voices. What does God say? What does the family of God say? And if we're walking through this life and we have in one ear, here's what God says, and we have in the other ear, here's what the family of God says, you'll find you can navigate that noise that will come. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the help, the practical help that it is. And God, I just wanna lift up this church family. Uh, some of them have noise in their ear right now, some feedback, some opinion, some criticism, some judgment. This isn't a message that they're hearing uh, and storing away for the future. This is something that they're hearing that is applying right now. God, I pray for them that the voice of God, that the voice of the family of God would help them in this season. Lord, there are others in here who, maybe they're not facing a lot of that kind of noise in their life right now. Praise God for those seasons. But Lord, when they come, and they will come, may we commit to listening first to you and secondly to the people of God to help us navigate this noise. God, I thank you for this church family. I thank you for their hunger and their thirst for the word of God. Would you honor them as they have listened to your word today? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.